Success leaves clues, and in the Humans of Imperial podcast, we search for those clues in the stories of our alumni around the world. I'm Chris Roberts, and this week I speak with Imperial MBA graduate, now human capital consultant with Deloitte in Denver in the United States, Ronnie Johnson. From a military career to Imperial College Business School during a pandemic, and now working on culture, change, and sustainability projects with Deloitte, this episode has it all. This is what you can hear this week. But yeah, I, I mean, being a, a nature lover, I mean, I love hiking, camping, love being outdoors whenever possible. So, um, you know, and, and seeing the headlines uh, around climate change and all those things sort of clicked um, and, and really drove me towards the energy and, and sustainability area. I thought it was a great mixture of sort of purpose and um, passion and, and all those things that you'd like to have and feel when you go into a, a new industry. If your culture is not one that supports uh, co-creation um, with the leaders and, and with the people that are planning the changes, um, that can make employees feel like they're, they're not being heard, um, which just drives them out the door um, to, to other companies that, that will make them feel heard. I try to be very consistent and, and drive sort of a couple of different pillars forward um, at the same time. So it's always typically something to do with veterans, always something to do with sustainability and energy, and then always something to do with um, organizational psychology and culture. So those are really the three. You're really looking at your employees, you're looking at your customers, you're putting the shareholders a bit more on the back burner and thinking about society and your impact on it a bit more, um, which is culture change. I mean, that's that's what it is. I mean, you're changing um, the incentive structure for your executives. You're changing um, all your, you know, your different employee benefits. It, it's it's a big shift and completely changing how we think about what a business means to to society. This is my conversation with Ronnie Johnson. Ronnie, thank you so much for joining me for the podcast. Why don't we start with a bit of an introduction from yourself? Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, my name is Ronnie Johnson, um, full-time MBA grad, um, graduated in uh, 2021, um, currently live in Denver. Um, but um, yeah, I was formerly um, an Army officer, uh, but now work at Deloitte um, in our consulting business. Cool. Thanks a lot. We'll dive into a lot of that, I think, as we go through the episode. So, so yeah. Can we start uh, talking about your background before you made the decision to come to Imperial? Obviously, you've just said you were an Army officer. Can maybe you could tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I started my career off at the University of Southern California um, in Los Angeles. So I was, I was doing um, economics degree, um, but it was also doing um, officer uh, training. Um, so ROTC program, which is somewhat similar to the... Um, military academies, West Point, stuff like that. So you train to um, go into the military um, after you graduate from, from undergraduate. Um, so I was doing that while I was there. Um, graduated in 2015 and went off to do some more training. Um, and then eventually went out, wound up in uh, Fort Hood, Texas. So I was, um, had roles as a, a tank platoon leader, um, infantry platoon leader, and had roles in HR and PR. Um, and was also deployed to Poland and Germany, where we got to do some training. And um, that's when I got to take a trip to London for the first time and started thinking about sort of the career after 
the army um, and uh, definitely started to click um, as far as uh, looking at that as a potential next step in my career. Um, but yeah, then that's when I was uh, started to apply to a bunch of um, different MBA programs and start to think longer term um, after that trip. It's really interesting to be honest. I mean, it's a little bit of a scene change going from uh, working in the military, getting deployed around the world, working with tanks. I think you mentioned that as well, to <laughs> then deciding to go somewhere like London and go to a business school. What was the, the motivation behind it? Um, I kind of always knew I didn't want to be in the military forever. I, I wanted um, kind of a person that likes a lot of different careers and likes to experience everything. Um, so it was sort of a, a stepping stone, very much was in the moment when I was there, but, um, you know, was always very much, uh, focused on leadership and always studied leadership. So the military was also a great, um, sort of incubator, um, for, for leaders. Um, and then the next step of that kind of tying back in the, the econ degree from, from earlier on was, um, looking at sort of business leadership and taking some of those lessons learned from the army. Um, into the corporate world. Um, so mm. I thought the MBA was a, a good way of doing that. Um, as you know, a lot of people do that to, to switch careers. So that's mm. exactly where I was at. Okay, so we'll talk to, talk to your MBA. Obviously, you came to Imperial. When was that? Um, what was the plan for the MBA? Was it something you were always planning on doing? It, or was there a specific reason you decided to do an MBA? Yeah. Um, well, it was 2020. So I always planned on doing it. Um, mm. Didn't plan on COVID-19, as we all didn't, but um, it made the transition quite interesting. Um, Obviously, had all my applications in, um, I think, around March. So, I mean, you remember March 2020, really started getting hairy um, around then. So, um, was making very big commitments, but didn't quite understand what was going to be, you know, open, if if, uh, the university was going to be open. and in the army, you have to really commit to getting out of the army six plus months in advance. Um, so I had to make a lot of uh, commitments to sort of get out and, you know, not have a for sure um, next step in my, my career. So that was a um, pretty pivotal moment, actually committing to getting out and, and going to London, um, not knowing, you know, how that was going to play out as much. Mm. How did that play out? I'm trying to remember, to be completely honest. <laughs> It hasn't even been that long since COVID, but to be honest, it feels like the last three, four years have just blurred into one long, no time exists in that period anymore. (laughs) What was happening at the point when you joined Imperial and started your MBA? Was that lockdown time? Yeah, well, you know that the rules changed quite a bit, but I think in September 2020, I I had to do the 10-day quarantine. Mm. We we started in a hybrid model, so we're half the cohort was going in person some days and half in another. So we were kind of switching off. Um, so we had about one day on the campus um, every week, but it was, as you know, I mean, lots of masks, lots of um, sterilization, stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. And that was the fall for the most part. So it wasn't quite locked down, but, you know, you, you go out somewhere, you'd have to sort of sit in a, a certain spot. You'd have to, um, you know, sit outside, stuff like that. So we're, we were in that phase um, yeah. when I got there. How was the experience? I mean, MBA is a big enough challenge at the best of times, never mind having to battle with <laughs> quarantines and, you know, hybrid models and lockdowns and things like that. How did you find the whole experience? Yeah, it was, it was a lot, um, but almost made London a little bit more manageable as far as like a small bite at a time. <laughs> um, 
the city wasn't as, you know, you walk around, it wasn't as crowded and you can sort of um, take it in a little bit easier. Um, obviously would have liked to have it and, you know, more in person, meet all the, you know, the, the whole cohort at the same time and have those nice discussions in the classroom. But um, at least the fall wasn't, wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, when we got into the, the winter surge, um in 2021 that's that's when we shut down and um actually went back to the u.s for a bit so that was unfortunate but um i sort of uh you know went around to different cities staying with friends while doing the mba coursework so um it was still pretty interesting but mm. yeah very very tough year um to, uh, to the NBA. unconventional way to do an mba i think going yeah. on kind of not really being in the same country never mind the same city as what you were supposed to be yeah yeah, it was the time zone difference. It was, it was quite uh, interesting. Mm. You had a focus, didn't you, on your, your MBA? You focused on energy and sustainability, and we're going to talk later on about you know what it is you're doing now. And since then, was was that always the kind of area you wanted to go into, like from the start of your MBA and from before mm-hmm. then as well? Or did that sort of happen as you went? Um, no, I, it's something I was exploring and really trying to find out when I got there. Uh, coming out of the military, I really had a um, blank slate, um, had an opportunity to pick a whole new industry. Um, but was always motivated by very, um, highly impactful areas and, um, actually was, was somewhat interested in utilities when I was, um, an undergrad and, and coming from mm-hmm. California, we always had water problems, we had wildfires. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very interested to solve those problems. So that was sort of in the back of my mind. Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, being a, a nature lover. I mean, I love hiking, camping, love being outdoors whenever possible. So, um, you know, and, and seeing the headlines uh, around climate change and all those things sort of clicked um, and, and really drove me towards the energy and, and sustainability area. I thought it was a great mixture of, of sort of purpose and um, passion and, and all those things that you'd like to have and feel when you go into a, a new industry. Mm. So tell me what happened next. You did your MBA. Obviously, we, we've talked about the challenges around COVID and things like that. Uh, you were coming towards, I guess, the end of your MBA. What was the next step after that? Um, yeah, so I did a internship, um, I think, in the, the spring with a, um, a clean tech startup, which was doing some really cool things, um, just to try to get some experience in the industry. But um, was also looking back um, to the U.S., applying for... Um, some roles at Deloitte um, as I was doing some of my elective courses um, and actually got a job offer, uh, I think in July or June. And I, and I went back in July. So um, cut the time back, um, you know, cut it off a little bit early just to get back there and start working, but mm-hmm. was also finishing up some of my um, elective courses as I was starting at Deloitte, which is interesting, but um yeah, I took the job back in Texas because that's where I was at in the military. So it's mm. somewhat familiar. I was trying to, you know, not have too many variables at the same time. Um, uh, so, yeah, I went back that in, in July and, and um, started working there. Considering you had, let's say, a problematic period of time while you were doing your MBA, it seems to have gone remarkably smoothly to kind of go from MBA to you secured an internship and obviously that sounds like that went well and then you went straight into a job and you, you managed to start that before the the end date and things like that how did you manage to make it go so smoothly during a time like that yeah um i think it was sort of planting some seeds um before i even went to imperial 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the military has um, quite a few alum at, at Deloitte. So they did um, connected us with, with current um, Deloitte employees while we're still getting out of the military. So had some conversations and um, basically said, I'll be right back. I'm going to go do the MBA. Um, <laughs> expect a call in a year. Um, so really just started harvesting those relationships um, as it was getting closer. And I was sort of eligible to start working. And, and as the, the program was winding down, um, I fully understand that's a, quite the exception, but the military connection, I think, is so strong that it's, mm-hmm. it's sort of unlike other um you know connections you possibly have at you know if you just have a, a mm-hmm. coffee chat with someone through linkedin you know it's not as powerful as a veteran trying to help you mm-hmm. you know um come to deloitte which is it's just pretty cool um we have a very strong uh, network um mm-hmm. in the in the veteran community so uh that helps quite a bit um make that transition pretty smooth there's a, there's a good message in that though isn't there about you know, if someone's at the start of their journey thinking about going to do their MBA, thinking about what their network is currently. I talk in this podcast with people all the time about taking advantage of the year you're here and, you know, it's a great opportunity to build your network. But you're talking about the network you've already had. And I think that's a really mm-hmm. interesting message for people to explore what their current network is and where that can lead them in the future. Yeah. And I think maintaining those relationships um, throughout the year so there's not just a, a gap in your, you know, communication. Um, and you know, maintaining those those weak ties um, throughout your your time in the NBA, and, and make sure you're you know just staying in touch. And um, yeah, I think it's it's very powerful. It's, it's hard to make a brand new connection um, right before you're sort of looking for a job. It, it's you know comes across as a bit more transparent, I think, and a bit, a bit more transactional um, than you know a longer term. And it just makes it look like you're you're more serious. You know, if you're started a connection a year ago and you still you know i still want the exact same thing it makes you look um a little more sure about yourself and your career mm-hmm. uh, which is good you're absolutely right as well by the way you mentioned uh, maintaining that relationship and it not being kind of transactional don't get me wrong you can reach out to people on linkedin and it can be a little transactional but mm-hmm. maintaining relationships with somebody is, is really important there's nothing worse than when someone contacts you only when they want something if you know what i yeah. mean yeah <laughs> Yeah, avoiding that when possible, that, that always made me feel uncomfortable. Um, found ways of making it more um, accessible to me. I think just like during the MBA, um, Professor Moore, she was talking about that and just sort of um, made me feel a little more comfortable about um, reaching out and doing those things. But um, that's really where, what hung me up was the transactional nature of it. And I didn't want to you know, sort of um, go down that road. So um she helped me out quite a bit with that. Yeah. Okay. So let's come to um, kind of what happened next after that. We talked about your time in Imperial. We've talked about your network. Uh, tell us what you're what you're doing at the moment. Uh, what's your current role, uh, and what are the kind of things that you do now? Yeah. Um, so I'm an organizational change management consultant um, within Deloitte Consulting in the U.S., um, but also work um, sort of in the energy and sustainability area. So whenever possible, uh, energy and utility clients. Um, Change management, um, basically what I've, what I do, um, is help companies go through large transformations. So it could be, um, big culture change, uh, initiative, um, implementation of some piece of technology, um, moving their 
you know, headquarters to a different city, anything like that, um, really handling the human aspect of that change, mm-hmm. um, understanding who's impacted, um, you know, to the, which degree they're impacted, um, and then coming up with some measures to sort of intervene and um, mitigate the impacts um, mm-hmm. of those changes on those people. So sometimes it's, it's communication, um, sometimes it's training, mm-hmm. um, sometimes it's a behavior change um, program. So really fun um, and really works with a lot of different organizations, a lot of different groups across Deloitte. So if it's a supply chain transformation, we're working with the supply chain team or, um, you know, real estate, we're working the real estate team. So um, it's really interesting in, in that regard. Mm. You see, change and culture are two topics I love to talk about. So I'm going to dig deeper in this one if that's all right. Um, yeah. First, first question really is, uh, what would you say the, the, the kind of main challenges are for companies when they want to start looking at implementing change, whether that be, I don't know, you mentioned kind of technology or whether it be people or opening the offices. What would you say um, the, the first things is to think about are? Yeah, um, we actually just had a our Deloitte Human Capital Trends Report is something I'll, I'll leverage for actual data on this. But um, time and time again, we see too many changes at once is the biggest barrier. Um, and I've seen that, and I think that's just how, um, the world is right now. I think it's just overwhelming. Um, when I go into an organization, they're doing a, uh, they're migrating to the cloud or they're, they're implementing a new piece of HR technology. Um, I mean, they're also doing three, four of those at once. They're, you know, their, their platform's changing, but also they're in a new role and they're moving offices. There's just too many things happening at once and um, trying to compete with those is really hard and trying to message that this new initiative is also important. Um, Mm. You can't have that many priorities. It's just, it's not how humans work. Mm. Um, So that's always a big one. The second one is, is leader resistant to change. Um, Mm. And we found that in our, our human capital trends report as well. Um, It's it's really the second um, biggest one. Um, And then, culture is always up there um, as a big change. And especially when we're talking about newer um, trends uh, like sustainability or AI, we see culture as being probably the biggest blocker um, for those newer trends. Um, so yeah, those, those are probably the three that I'd, I'd, uh, mm. I'd say are the biggest. Yeah, I mean, it changes one of those things, I think, as people go through their careers. I mean, we might have some you know more experienced people listening to this episode who have been through changes. And if, they, if they've, you know, if you've got a few years experience, I'd be amazed if you haven't experienced change where you were. Yeah. And, you know, we'll have some students and graduates listening to this who are going into their first roles and haven't experienced it yet. How would you say change impacts the culture of an organization? Because change is one of those things that can either happen to people or it can be something that you do together. And if it happens to you, that can have a pretty big impact on culture, can't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think those two, the relationship between those two, I think if, if you want to live in a world where this many changes are going on at once, like, and we see that's, that's the case right now, I think creating a culture where you're a little bit more agile and you're um, not as uh, sort of written in stone is, is really the ideal path there, um, being an agile organization. Um, but kind of going back to your original question, if you're an organization that's always experimenting experiencing multiple changes at once um, that makes the culture quite chaotic 
Um, that's when you, you know, those jokes about those quote unquote, like fast paced organizations that are, um, you know, you got to work in a fast paced environment where, you know, all those red flags that you hear, that just means that there's too many competing priorities typically. Um, mm. and there's not a real focus. So that can impact the culture and make it a really stressful place to work. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a big, um, impact if you feel the change is happening to you and, um, mm-hmm. if your culture is not one that supports, uh, co-creation, um, with the leaders and, and with the people that are planning the changes, um, that can make employees feel like they're, they're not being heard, um, mm-hmm. which just drives them out the door, um, to, to other companies that, that will make them feel heard. So mm-hmm. yeah, big correlation. I've seen you use a phrase, um, human centered change. I was wondering if you could describe to our listeners what is human-centered change yeah um a lot like human-centered um design where you're you're sort of designing something around um the human experience first um and not sort of um designing a widget and then seeing if it's if it's something a person would like or something a person would use you're asking the person um, from the ground up how to build this widget or whatever it is um we do the same thing with change at, at deloitte um so it's it's a co-creation of the change program with with the employee with the impacted stakeholder. Um, mm-hmm. So, like I said, sometimes it could be a communications effort that helps mitigate the changes of a transformation. Um, but we don't just guess that. We bring employees along the journey and ask them: Would communications help you understand this change? Would training help you understand this change? We don't just guess. Um, and sort of a waterfall approach to to project management where. We're, Mm-hmm. sort of uh, build it in a, in a dark room uh, somewhere and then just release it. <laughs> um, the human center change portion is, is just like um, a lot of other product design uh, methods right now. So um, really try to co-create with the impact of stakeholder as much as possible um, to make sure the change program is really what they need, not just, you know, what we've always done and giving them sort of a standard package of this, this, and this, and, sort of calling it a day. Uh, so very hyper-personalized. It's, it's culture is one of these things that is, I think I think it's talked about a lot more than it used to be, but it's so important. I, think I, want, I read a quote a while back that said that culture tells us what to do when the boss isn't in the room, which I think is really interesting, especially when you're talking about change, because it's almost like if you haven't got the culture right, before you even start, and if you haven't got the approach right before you even start, then how how does the change happen? Because if people aren't following when they're not in the room and there isn't somebody there to drive it, then it makes it really difficult. It's that kind of, I don't know if this oversimplifies it, but the whole, the Tuckman forming, storming, norming, performing thing. I think mm-hmm. a lot of companies will go through trying to implement change and they'll get to this point where there's flux and there's resistance and it's difficult. And they maybe never actually get to the performance stage because they're always changing. And if you don't have the culture and you're not bringing people along with you and all those people leave because they're not enjoying the process, then you're back to square one again. You're back to forming because you're forming a new team. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of wasted organizational energy. If you get to that, that point where you're um, deep in the change process and then some somehow hit a roadblock, um, mm. that's, that's a lot of energy loss. It's a lot of time loss from employees. Mm. And um, yeah, I completely agree. It's um, yeah. That's why you ideally fix that first. <laughs> if, if that's ever a question um, before yeah. you start down the road of a, a big change initiative. Yeah, and that would be the human, I guess, the focus on people kind of part of it. So, yeah. I mean, 
talking completely practically, why don't you talk us through what a day in the life of, of you looks like? What, what does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, um, I'd say it's more so a week. I think days can vary quite a bit, but um, a week generally, I mean, our, my number one priority is always my client. So um, whatever client calls I'm on or um, either on-site or virtual could be um, interacting with the client, interviewing stakeholders, um, stuff like that. It could be uh, more so focused on leading a team and, and the creation of a deliverable, um, or it could just be, he- you know, heads down work that I'm doing. Um, but clients, the number one priority. Um, and then um, at Deloitte, we do uh, a lot of internal um, initiatives called practice development or, or really passion projects um, that aren't billable, but it's sort of supporting the firm or supporting a group of people in the firm. So I do uh, different initiatives for veterans, um, do a lot of sustainability and, and um, energy industry market research. Um, and then we also have some some volunteer events that pop up as well. So I try to um, take part in those. Um, and then third, uh, really any sort of professional development um, Deloitte puts out, you know, right now I'm going through a, a whole um, AI course, sort of building AI fluency. So we have those, we have ones on sustainability. We have any topic that we can um, really get better on as a firm or, you know, um, learn about um, whatever I want to learn about. It's just, I try to do a little bit of that um, each week as well, just to stay sharp um, and continue to, to grow. Do you know what's really interesting talking to you? There's a really clear thread from the start of this conversation right the way through to where we are now. You know, you kind of, you're talking about joining the military, you use your network to kind of scope out opportunities before you decided, you know, what you're going to do next. You went and did your MBA, you focused it sort of on sustainability, and now you're working and part of your passion projects are with veterans. It's it's really interesting to see how you've progressed all the way through. If I didn't know any better, I'd say it was completely intentional. <laughs> yeah, it might might be. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, that's, try to be consistent um it's it's really hard if i you know if one day i wake up and all of a sudden i'm into ai um i put i've been putting a lot of time and effort into learning about sustainability so i kind of want to stay there and yeah. put a lot of time and effort into learning about culture and change so um you know i did one big switch from the military and i think now i'd like to be a sort of an expert in this field so um I try to be very consistent and, and drive sort of a couple of different pillars forward um, at the same time. So it's always typically something to do with veterans, always something to do with sustainability and energy, and then always something to do with um, organizational psychology and culture. So those are mm. really the three. Well, let's talk about sustainability. You've touched on it a little bit. What was it, do you think, that really pushed you into that sort of sphere? What is it that that's, that's it's clearly a passion that you have. What is it yeah. would you say that kind of drives that passion? Yeah, um, being um, really into the outdoors. I mean, I, whenever possible, I like to be hiking and camping. And um, I figured it'd be what better use of my time to be, you know, making um, a career out of preserving that. Um, you know, I, I thought that would be a very good fit. Um, just being, you know, into the outdoors I am, um, something that can actually make me excited to go to work and you know, preserving the, the things I love, I think is, um, was a big part of it. Um, but, you know, more professionally focused, I think typically you try to look at where your passions are, what you're good at and, um, what could make the world a better place or make you, um, 
you know, make a career out of it financially. Mm-hmm. I think sustainability fit all those. Obviously, I talked about the passion, um, trying to be good at it. Like I said, trying to do with the research and learn as much as I can. But obviously, a big professional um, move as well uh, right now. I think that's a, a great place to be if you're looking at a long-term career. Um, mm-hmm. So those three things really um, fit in sustainability, I think, more so than, than any other area. Um, mm-hmm which really drove me to those. Mm. Sustainability is obviously one of those issues at the moment that it's obviously really important. It's something that's growing and more and more companies are getting a little bit more switched on about it as well. Would you say, would you say it's something that every company should be thinking about? Yeah, of course. Um, I think we're, we're much past that now. I think every company is thinking about it. I think there is uh, new areas where I think they're, they're not thinking about as much, but I think as far as net zero goals are concerned, I think, forgot the last statistic, but it's pretty close. Um, getting to 90 or close to 90 of, of Fortune 500 companies, percentage mm-hmm. of them have, have net zero goals. Or, um, <clears throat> so I think it is on top of, of everyone's mind. Um, mm-hmm. Regardless of sort of the political turmoil, I think, you know, if you look at just the investments, I think it's a pretty steady state going in that direction. And, and um, I think it's going to be very important to organizational strategy going forward. Mm-hmm. Are there any kind of common areas that companies are looking at? I mean, we, we know most like most companies, if not all, are paying attention uh, to sustainability now. Uh, are there any any things that are coming up again and again that companies are trying to get right that you know that might have got wrong in the past? Yeah, I think the net zero one is well on its mm-hmm. way. I think we've been talking about um, carbon for a while now, and I think it's something that everyone understands pretty easily. I think you know everyone understands what a greenhouse gas is and why it's bad. Um, the new one, I think, is, is also something I'm really interested in is, is biodiversity um, and natural resource management, which is really, really new um, to companies besides sort of the em- Environmental Protection Act sort of um, laws that we've always um, tried to abide by. And, you know, you, you build a new dam and you don't want to impact the, the fish in that, that waterway or, you know, et cetera, things like that that are um, very much the minimum. Um, but now we're looking at things like building new factories, impacting water consumption and how that's going to impact the town and um, just generally being a good steward of the environment and, and biodiversity in a way that we um, haven't really in the past. I think it's something that, that's starting to come, come up a lot more um, and it's starting to mimic what early net zero looked like. So early wave of commitments followed by a... Um, sort of guess about what to do next and how to reach those commitments. Um, so very much like the net zero goals, I think. Mm. I'm going to ask you a question that's a little bit unfair, so I apologize in advance. Um, what do you think the future looks like, which is the difficult part? Uh, what <clears throat> does it depend on as well? Because obviously there are consequences if we don't get this right, and there's consequences if, if companies don't get it right as well. So, yeah, what does the future look like, and what sort of things need to happen? I think it looks just like net zero for biodiversity. I think it looks very similar. Um, like I said, it, it's going to come down to a, a bunch of commitments followed by a bunch of companies needing help to get there, mm. um, which is coincidentally where I sit, <laughs> so that's <laughs> nice. Um, and I think it's going to be... The same thing. I mean, the hard thing about biodiversity and, and natural resource management and nature is sometimes called, but there's no um, Paris Agreement. There's no 
degrees that we're, we're aiming to um, reach or not reach. Um, it's a little bit harder to, to set a goal. Um, typically, it's just being nature positive and, and not, you know, harming biodiversity and not, you know, making a certain species extinct. But it's really hard to quantify where you want to be, I think. Um, so it might be a little bit more difficult and it might be a little bit more confusing um, than net zero, which is pretty straightforward um, besides trying to figure out where, where all your carbon's coming from, which is sometimes very difficult, but um, it is a little bit harder, but I, I do see it following a similar path where, where companies are going to need help um, reaching their commitments. Um, but yeah, what was the, the second part? I don't remember to be honest with you. I've got to do have another <laughs> question about this though. Uh, it's yeah. the kind of thing I could talk about all day. Completely honest. And when you add culture to the mix of it as well, honestly, I could go on and on. But I do get the feeling that sustainability over the last few years has been one of those issues that is, you know, the hot topic. Every company's starting to talk about it. Every company's starting to think about it. And at first, it kind of felt like they had to. And they were, you know, it wasn't always sincere. But now it feels like sustainability and, and the environment and carbon emissions are they're almost more of a culture issue now than they are a business issue or something we need to be talking about. It's almost like the culture of an organization, one of the pillars needs to be sustainability. It needs to be something that everybody's bought in on and everybody's talking about. It's not just something that's happening to people, something that everybody is driving forward. Yeah. Um, and again, that's what we see in our human capital trends report, um, culture being the biggest roadblock to achieving sustainability goals for organizations. Oh. Um, so, I mean, historically, we, companies have not internalized negative externalities like they're really being held accountable for now. Um, so their impact on the environment, you know, if it wasn't internalized or if it wasn't um, somehow um, being accounted for by regulations, um, it wasn't really their problem. Um, and now those things are being internalized and, and um, it's just changing how companies operate and um, mm -hmm. having to think about that before, you know, before it was just profit maximization and, um, you know, Friedman and <laughs> all those things. And now it's, uh, it's mm -hmm. really thinking about um, all of your stakeholders and, and trying to prioritize um, probably customers a bit more and, and employees a bit more. Um, mm -hmm especially in a, in a tight labor market. Um, you're really looking at your employees, you're looking at your customers, you're putting the shareholders a bit more in the back burner and thinking about society and your impact on it a bit more, um, which is culture change. I mean, that's, that's mm -hmm. what it is. I mean, you're changing um, the incentive structure for your executives. You're changing um, all your, you know, your different employee benefits. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a big shift and, completely changing how we think about what a business means to, to society. It's, it's, you kind of blew my mind when you said that, that, that the word roadblock there. I was, when I was talking, I, I kind of felt it was, you know, the culture was shifting towards people pushing towards sustainability. But if culture being the roadblock, is that because the changes that companies bring in clash with what people are used to the kind of the kind of work they're doing is, is that what the kind of problem is how do you how do you fix that from being a roadblock to being something that's driving it forward i know that's that's a difficult question but yeah yeah i mean a massive culture change initiative is mm -hmm. really um but yes it is a roadblock and it's not like i said when you're not used to thinking about that as a um part of your decision making process and 
I think we're still in the phase where we have a chief sustainability officer and that's kind of their problem to figure out how to make our business sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we don't think about how the decision is made throughout the chain of management um, and how we incorporate sustainability into that mindset throughout, then mm-hmm. it's really just a, a sort of a top-down approach, which is, is not really what you want. You want a mm-hmm. bottom-up approach where your lowest level employees is thinking about how can I make this more sustainable? And they have to be incentivized to do so. Um, and that's the culture change piece. I, I think a lot of companies that, that's really just putting a bandaid on it, um, mm-hmm. creating some sort of sustainability office and, and not really um, embedding that into your culture. Um, mm-hmm. I think long-term is not a successful um, approach. Yeah, you're totally right. It's, you know, having a, a person whose t- job title is sustainability officer and then thinking you're doing a great job probably isn't quite hitting the mark, is it? It's, it's something yeah. that it does have to be on everybody's mind and and something that is driven by everybody isn't just something that we're taking on. It's something that we go with and we push ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. From the bottom up, um, yeah. I mean, embedding those decisions. And it's the same thing with with biodiversity and um and equity and, and all these, you know, if you just think of ESG um, and, you know, the, the actual breakdown of those three things, and it's not just sustainability. It's, it's also, um, like I said, equity and, and diversity and um, mm. all those things can't just be a top-down approach. They all have to be bottom-up yeah. um, for it to be a truly sustainable change to the culture. Yeah, yeah. Do you think we're getting closer to that? I mean, in general, do you think, do you think we're improving on that front? Yeah, <clears throat> we saw that in the... Um, our trends report as well, um, to where companies are not being satisfied with the um, sort of we we did an approach. Um, you know, we we implemented a system to create more diversity. We're, mm-hmm. Like it's not really acceptable anymore, and, and Deloitte's seen that as well. Where you need results. Um, I'm glad you have a diversity panel or a you know, a DEI initiative, um, if it's not producing any results, that doesn't mean anything. It's, I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's great to put on your wall and, and, um, but if you're not creating a diverse, um, cohort of leaders or you're not really showing any progress, it's, it's kind of useless. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that's a sort of a phase two, um, in this journey. And again, parallel sustainability, you, you did your, your net zero goals, um, but now we're starting to report on progress and, you know, we're looking at 2030 for a couple of these short-term goals. Um, so really trying to see, okay, what's, what's it yielding? Um, so that's a sort of a phase two, I think that we're in now for those, those mm-hmm. areas. It's so pointless as well when things are just tokenistic because it, you know, there's, there's a ton of benefits from having a diverse teams and diverse workforce and you know mm-hmm. diverse ideas and backgrounds and people. There's so much, like the net gain, from having that outweighs anything. It's so ridiculous just to have a tokenistic approach and say, here's the policy and leave it at that. I don't think, like maybe I'm not being cynical enough, I don't think most companies want to have a tokenistic approach. I think most do want to have diverse teams and you know have the, the benefits of it as well. Yeah. they. I mean, they want what their employees want and they want what their customers want. And that's what their customers want. And that's what their employees want. Um, so that's what companies do. I mean, they optimize their resources to give, to give mm-hmm. customers what they want. So um, customers do want a diverse organization that they're buying their, their products from, and they want a sustainable organization. And employees want to work for those organizations. They don't want to work for organizations that are doing harm to people and society. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, it's, and that's going to 
I, I don't think that's going anywhere. I mean, that's mm-hmm. big re- reason why I, I chose the industry and, and the company that I work for. Um, and I know it's a, it's a big, even a bigger reason for the generations that are coming after me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's, it's very important for companies to look at, at long-term and, and actual results. I like how you did that, by the way. You brought that right the way back to, we're talking about business schools, we're talking about MBAs, and you you brought that, and I'm almost on a soapbox, kind of getting a bit carried away with things, but you brought that straight back to what the customer wants. And you're totally right. Companies have to do what the customer wants, otherwise they're not going to exist as things mm-hmm. go. So we talk about culture. It's not just culture in terms of what are, what our are organization's doing, what our company's doing, what our business is doing. It's what are we all doing just to get a little bit existential about it all. It's really a culture change that has to happen in society as much as anything else. And if the customer is driving change, even the most reluctant businesses will have to change with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's not sort of a political thing and it really isn't, Um, you know, and I think as long as customers are are wanting a certain thing, and I think that's just going to continue to go in one direction. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, and that's what companies do. I mean, if, if you know, I want a new car with this feature, companies build that feature if enough people want that. So mm-hmm. um, that's the same thing with 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 these, you know, with sustainability and and equity, and um, mm-hmm. it's just companies doing that same thing. And I think if they apply that mm-hmm. same principle, um, they'll be they'll be successful. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's um, final question for you. Let's bring it back to um, to students and business schools. Uh, I always ask this question on the podcast. What advice would you have for current students at the moment? So if you could go back in time and talk to yourself a few years ago when you're at the very start of your journey or when you're coming to the end of your MBA, what advice would you have? I think for anyone interested in sustainability, it's um, I tried to read as much as I could. I, you know, I took some um, sort of certificate courses or whatever at, at Imperial, but um we are really at a point where we need degrees and, and people that are um, have degrees in this field. So I think if it's a serious um, pursuit for your career, I think getting some sort of degree in that is, is really beneficial. Um, the world is, you know, really needing those, those degrees right now, those advanced degrees in sustainability. Um, so that would be a, definitely a, something I would suggest um, as much as you read in a, in a very technical field, it's very hard to, to sort of apply that or um, seem credible just by, um, you know, your, your obsession or <laughs> your reading in that topic. So that's definitely something I'd say, but um, I definitely try to do that as well. And I'd say for any current um, student at Imperial, the Grantham Institute is something I tried to get involved in as much as possible. Um, something I still leverage today. Um, the, um Grantham Institute's website and um, newsletters and try to stay involved there. But um, as far as sustainability is concerned, we have a pretty um, great program um, there, which I took some courses to through. Um, but yeah, and, and as far as consulting, I mean, we have a great course in the full time, I think, in, in all of our MBA programs. But um, yeah, just being really good at problem solving, um, being really good at critical thinking. And it's something that you learn through the MBA, but um, I think taking that approach to everything you do and, and sort of breaking down root causes um, and thinking very structured um, and how you're going to solve a problem um, is something that's not only great for consulting, it's, it's great for your everyday life as well. But I think I probably would have worked on, on that more um, earlier than, than just in the MBA course. Um, mm-hmm. 
but in general, very happy with how things ended up. So luckily don't have too many uh, lessons learned um, besides those, those two, I think. Um, but yeah, very, very happy. Really, it's, honestly, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you and I could have spoke to you about a few of those topics literally all day long. So I really <laughs> appreciate taking the time. I know it's early in the morning there as well. So thank you for doing this. Yeah, of course, Chris. Huge thank you again to Ronnie for joining me on the podcast. One thing that really stood out to me is that Ronnie had a plan and he followed it to perfection. It was interesting to hear about his time in the military and how that influenced his journey later on. I loved how he spoke about using his network even before he reached Imperial 2, laying the groundwork for where he would eventually end up after his MBA. There's a lesson there for all of us too. We often think we have to build our network from scratch, but Ronnie looked at what he already had in front of him, and it really worked. So here's a question for you. Who are you connected to right now that might help you to get to where you want to be? I'll admit, workplace culture is one of those subjects that I love, so I did spend a bit of time on that one, but I'm not sorry. We got some brilliant insights into how a company can and should implement change, and I love the concept of human-centered change, and bringing people with you, rather than change being something that just happens to you. You could really hear his passion for sustainability too, and I love how he simplified it in such a personal way through his love of the outdoors. Sustainability is something that we all need to be conscious of, and it's something that's becoming part of our culture in and out of the workplace. And it's people like you who will ultimately make the difference in forming that culture in the future. Thanks again to Ronnie, and if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe. I've been Chris Roberts, and I'll see you next time.